Welcome to What She Said on 105.9 The Region. I'm your host, Candace Sampson. I do my best weekly to start every show on a positive note, but I have to say that this week I simply can't do it. I'm angry, I'm sad, and I'm scared. And I know that many of you feel the same way. There is no point even trying to hide it. With that said, we can feel these emotions and still move forward with intention and purpose to make this world a better place for our children. Women, and I believe this more than ever, hold the key. Our voices need to be heard at every level of government, in every institution and business, and in the arts. This week's show has a stellar lineup of women from all of those spaces, starting with Andrea Horvath, leader of the Ontario New Democratic Party. Andrea joins me to discuss the issues that truly matter no matter where you live, childcare, education, women in the workforce, and healthcare. Calm and measured, Andrea is worth listening to no matter where you sit on the political spectrum. Anne Brody has distractions galore with entertainment this week, and once again, she joins us twice. Her regular Saturday Night at the Movies takes a look at yet another Batman iteration, as well as Dawn, Her Dad, and The Tractor, a timely film about a trans woman and the importance of allies. She joins us later in the show with an interview with Canadian actress Jennifer Spence, who plays Kathy Torrance in Britbox's forensic series, Traces. Just as we're all starting to feel like we couldn't possibly take another thing on our already full plates, tax season is here. Susan Watkin from TurboTax joins me today to share what we should be looking out for as we file this year and how to get the most out of our returns. I always love having Susan on the show as she takes the fear of taxes away with sound advice. Divorce in Canada is messy. Courts are overburdened and delays can cause everything from tension to rise between ex-partners to devastating financial outcomes and sadly even loss of life. Sarah Larniak from Canada Land joins me to share details on four cases she highlighted on a recent podcast, including a story from yours truly. If you're heading into family court, you will definitely want to hear this one. Finally, Rayanne Brown joins me to discuss her beautiful new book for children depicting the transformative dreams envisioned by a young Inuk girl with the help of her loving mother. A first-time author from Newfoundland, Rayanne joins me to discuss the importance of Indigenous literature for children. It's another full week at What She Said with interviews that empower, educate, and entertain. So let's jump in right now on 105.9 The Region. From her early career in community development to today, Andrea Horvath has always believed that government should be about giving people the opportunity to build a good life no matter where in Ontario they live or when Ontario became their home. As the leader of the official opposition, 
since 2018 and leader of the Ontario New Democratic Party since 2009, Andrea is preparing for the polls this coming June and joins me today to discuss key topics that women in particular want to hear about. Welcome to the show, Andrea. Thank you, Candice. Thanks for inviting me. I appreciate it. So let's start with education because Ontario has suffered the longest school closure in Canada and amongst the highest in North America and Europe comparing regional averages. So how do we keep kids from falling through the cracks while simultaneously providing the best possible education to those coming up behind? No, you're absolutely right. And it was heartbreaking to watch how uh, not only uh, how long our kids were out of classrooms, uh, but with the knowledge that it didn't have to be that way. So there could have been uh, more investments throughout the pandemic to make our schools safe, you know, smaller class sizes, uh, better ventilation from the get-go, reduced uh, capacity limits in uh, in transportation, for example, on school buses. Uh, there were just so many more things that could have been done. Uh, testing could have been done. Uh, I think it was 50,000 tests being promised uh, every week by the Minister of Education, uh, you know, a, a year ago, a year ago, two years ago now, actually, the first fall of uh, missing school for kids. Uh, and so so now we are exactly right. The, the impact on our children has been significant. Parents are worried and rightfully so uh, about how to make sure that kids catch up. And, and one of the things that uh, we've seen is a government that we have now that has been cutting education. And they have been cutting education from the get-go. They were trying to fire 10,000 teachers before the pandemic hit. I don't know if you recall that. Many of whom are women, by the way, uh, because education is a female-dominated uh, uh, you know, workplace or, or sector. Uh, and, and so so what we don't see are the kinds of investments needed uh, to make sure our kids get not only the academic support, but the uh, uh, the, the mental health supports uh, that are necessary to uh, to kind of bounce back, if you will. Uh, but we certainly won't be able to make sure that the next uh, you know generation of kids is uh, is able to meet their full potential if we continue to have governments that that cut education. Education is really key, yes, for kids, uh, yes, for families, but also for our economy uh, and uh, and for our competitiveness. And so it's uh, it's just the wrong thing to do to continue to cut. So we, we would be making those investments. Um, we have been calling on the government to make those Im- investments from day one. And we called on the previous government to do the same. I mean, they they closed 600 schools uh, and, and that had an impact on on kids and on families. And so th- there's uh, there's a lot of work that can be done to shore up our education system and give our kids their their best chance at uh, at having great careers and, and fulfilling um, you know, fulfilling their, their, their gifts uh, and their opportunities. Right. And I, I feel I fear a bit of a bottleneck happening here with these kids who are, are lagging behind and obviously the kids coming up behind. So that is going to require a bigger investment in education for sure uh, down the road. You mentioned uh, women in the workforce with teachers. And of course, we all know we've talked about it endlessly on this show about the she session, the mom session. Uh, what is your plan to help women recover the ground they lost in the workforce through the pandemic? That's a really great question, Candice. And, and we've made some commitments right off the hop. Um, we, we certainly will uh, cut the deal for the $10 a day childcare. That's something that is a priority for us. I used to be the critic for childcare for my party before I was the leader. I've been calling for $10 a day childcare for 15 years here in Ontario, if not longer. So certainly childcare is a big piece of it, but uh, but it it has like the she the she session is here. Uh, it's upon us, uh, and there doesn't seem to be any targeted 
you know, uh, action from this government to support women. And so when, when we were urging the government to put forward a, uh, a package to uh, help small business, for example, get through the pandemic, we identified uh, that, w- that female women interp- um, entrepreneurs need uh, to have some specific supports. Uh, so it, it is it is not only getting women the opportunity to get back into the workforce with things like uh, uh, childcare, but it's also making sure that the workplaces are places where women uh, are excelling and, and succeeding. And so things like pay transparency, for example, uh, things like a better uh, minimum wage. We've already made the commitment to a $20 minimum wage within our first term government in a phased way so that uh, businesses can adjust. Uh, but but those are some of the, the, the big pieces. And when we talk about places of work like childcare, like healthcare, uh, we, we have to identify that uh, women deserve uh, decent jobs that pay a- enough to uh, put food on the table uh, and and ensure that that women are running to two and three different jobs just to feed their own family. So I think for, particularly of ECEs uh, and uh, making sure their wages are uh, are are much better. PSWs uh, and other frontline folks in the healthcare system. So there's there's really a, 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 I would say a, a suite of different things that can be done and need to be done uh, to um, to make sure we're. We're having a she covery and not just a, a she session. Exactly. And it's interesting you bring up the, the increasing the minimum wage because it feels like we just got to $15 and then inflation went out of control. So, of course, we need to now address that with wages. Um, let's talk about childcare for a few minutes because this is really, really frustrating uh, that Ontario is the last province to sign on for this childcare deal. So, What's going on? And and I, I am assuming that this is something you would address immediately. Absolutely. We would uh, immediately make the deal happen with uh, with the federal government in terms of $10 a day child care. Why? Because we fundamentally believe in it. Uh, and in terms of what's happening, I think there's a couple of different things. Uh, one is that it's just not a priority for, for Doug Ford's government. If it was a priority, uh, they would be able to have a deal made. Every other province, as you identify, has been able to do that. Ontario is the outlier. uh, And it's obviously, it hasn't been a priority thus far. We are hearing that there's still no tangible plan on the table from Ontario that the federal government can work with or or can, you know, can understand in terms of a plan. But uh, the other thing that's really, really troubling to me is I fear, and I don't have, I don't have any evidence of this, but I know how this current government works. And I'm really fearful that the reason they can't get a deal is because they won't commit to, um, to, to making sure that every single penny of that child care money is spent on child care. Uh, this government it likes to give tax cuts. They like to, uh, you know, give favors to their buddies. And, um, and I just fear that they're refusing to commit to spending every single dollar on child care instead of ca- tax cuts for the wealthy. I, I, can't, I don't have any proof of that. But as I said, that's what worries me. And meanwhile, we're paying the highest childcare costs in this in the entire country and have been for a long time. I mean, some families are paying over two thousand uh, dollars a month for for childcare, and that's just for one child. So Ontario is actually in the worst situation, uh, you know, prior to this announcement last year from the federal government, and and we continue to be without a deal. It's uh, it, you know, you talked about inflation. Uh, there's two sides of that that uh, equation, though. It's it's making sure. Wages are keeping up. And so we would be working on that, as I've mentioned. But it's also these other things that help make life more affordable. And certainly $10 a day child care uh, is, is right up there in the, in the top, uh, top things that would help families be able to afford uh, 
uh, you know, a, be a, afford an ever-increasing cost of living. It it seems outrageous to me that we we still haven't figured this out, and yet Doug Ford just uh, stopped all payments on license plates. I mean, was anybody even asking for this? No, nobody was asking for it, and it's it's disappointing because here we go again. You know, we're hitting an election cycle, and it's going to be all about gimmicks and giveaways instead of dealing with the fundamentals that uh, uh, that people need to see fixed. That, that's it. I mean, there are so many things we need to fix. Some are from the pandemic, but some are, are from the pre-pandemic times. Let's not forget, uh, we had hall- hallway medicine in Ontario before the pandemic hit, and and Doug Ford was cutting public health. Uh, bef- you know, before the pan- pandemic, the same with education. Education was it was falling apart. We had a, almost sixteen billion dollars in repair backlogs. What did that look like? Literally, kids in some schools wearing their mittens and their coats in the winter uh, because it was because the, the the heating systems were were completely uh, needing of repairs. And so there's a lot that needed to be fixed before. And then we got the double whammy of Doug Ford and the pandemic. Uh, so there's there's a heck of a lot of uh, of work to do, uh, but I but I it is about priorities, and so prioritizing our children, prioritizing uh, our our seniors and our 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 aging loved ones, right? Prioritizing our healthcare system. That's what governments are all about. It's all about the priorities, and so if the priority is you know stickers on license plates, that's fine, uh, but that's really not what I think the priorities are right now. And the the real affordability that's much more long lasting are the things I've already talked about, as well as things like making sure people can afford a roof over their head. Absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. Um, We're out of time today. I hope that we can have you back uh, before the election in June. Andrea, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, I mean, I feel it's obvious, but if people want to connect with you, where's the best place to do that? Well, there's a first and foremost is probably our website, which is uh, OntarioNDP.ca. From that, you can get all of the other links. But you can also look at our platform planks because we've already made platform commitments around housing, around uh, seniors care, uh, around health care and hospitals. And so uh, I just encourage people to to have a look at that. I really think this is an opportunity to really um, to really step up, if you will, and, and take what we've learned through the pandemic. Uh, and not only go back to the way it was before, uh, but to actually do much, much better. Uh, that's where I see our opportunity so that we can actually look in the eyes of our kids and our grandkids and our, our parents and say, you know, we're going to fix it. We're going to fix it for you and for the next generation. Absolutely. Thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a pleasure. My pleasure, Candice. Thank you. More with Candace Sampson and what she said coming up on 105.9 The Region. Welcome back to What She Said with Candace Sampson on 105.9 The Region. Joining me now for Saturday Night at the Movies is Anne Brody. And Anne, I got to tell you, I saw Batman at the top of your list this week and thought, why another Batman and why Robert Pattinson? (laughs) Just what I was thinking when it was announced. (laughs) It's fantastic. (laughs) Pattinson, Pattinson is a dream in this. 
Yes, it's not in the least bit uh, flashy and uh, sort of tech based as you might think it is for 2022. It's um, almost analog, kind of old fashioned, but he is perfect. He has long ago left these personas that I had given him anyway, uh, to become this um, fighter for justice, this sort of sullen, uh, dark. He's got a very low voice and it's kind of compelling because you're straining to hear him and understand. Uh, And of course, you know, he's Bruce Wayne and the police are corrupt. The city officials are corrupt. So he is the only one standing between New York and, excuse me, Gotham City and (laughs) total collapse. (laughs) So, you know, and I saw something really interesting. Somebody just placed a cloth on a spotlight and that's how you signal Batman. It's nothing complicated. You can do it with a piece of paper or some cloth. Anyone who needs help. I wish it were that easy in life. <laughs> but, well, w- wouldn't we all want that right now? Yeah. Oh, my God. Yes. Isn't it the truth? And Zoe Kravitz is there as, as Selena Kyle, and she's kind of in training for a big, big, big title coming up. And um, yeah, so it's basically an origin story of the Riddler. It, it's just so much fun. You see that the seeds of what's coming up. And you have Colin Farrell as somebody called... Oswald Cobblepot, and he's huge. You'd never know it was him. You would not know it's him. Apparently, he wore a fat suit, and he was checked every few seconds to make sure the seams weren't visible. I saw a couple, but never mind. Well, I don't know how many more iterations of Batman I can deal with, (laughs) but I will take your word on this one. Yeah, and you know what? Three hours long? Three hours long? Didn't look at my watch once. All right. Well, that speaks volumes, Anne. Uh, Tell me about Jockey. Oh, my God, what a wonderful film. A very small independent film starring and produced by Clifton Collins Jr., who you know in a lot of gangster roles. He plays an aging jockey, and Canadian actor Molly Parker plays his partner. And, of course, he's suffered. He's middle-aged. He has a lot of injuries and concussions and broken bones that have healed and whatnot. And he's seeing all these younger jockeys suffering and losing their jo- their ability to ride a horse and oftentimes their ability to move whatsoever for life. So it's all very sobering. She encourages them. They buy a new horse and start training it. And in the middle of all this gloom and doom and existential problems, a young jockey shows up claiming to be his son. So everything takes on an even more poignant aspect. Uh, the intimacy between Parker and Collins is astounding. I haven't seen anything like this in a long while. And they're in their shots together. It's almost like they're glued together. It's astonishing to me, but it works. It works so well. And I'll have an interview with the two of them this week. So jockey is definitely on your must-see list. I was really fascinated with the movie Dawn and the Tractor. It's a very sort of low-key story about a milk farmer whose wife has died. The milk farmer is played by Rob Wells from the Trailer Park Boys, if you can imagine. And he's, uh, he's shy. He's not very forthcoming. He's, you know, deeply rural. But his two daughters are coming home for his wife's funeral. And uh, one brings her boyfriend and the other one comes home. She's no longer Dawn, D-O-N. She's Dawn, D-A-W-N. And of course, it throws the family into 
chaos, absolute chaos. They refuse to accept him. Whereas the, the old farmer from next door drops over and he says, oh, hi, Don, you're a different person now. Good for you. Very accepting. So you have these varieties of response to her situation. And it's a long, long journey that she takes with her father in coming to terms. But much of it is done over repairing a tractor, of all things. It's just a beautiful film. It really speaks to the heart. And I think it's a great film that parents might show the kids in order to open discussion to LBGTQ plus stuff. Uh, it's yeah. yeah, you know, I, I have to say this movie is very timely because considering what's just happened in Texas and their horrifying new law in and around trans kids, this movie is timely and hopefully uh, will, uh, you know, bring about some empathy and some understanding for what these families are going through. So, Anne, we're out of time for this week, but you have this and a whole bunch more over on whatshesaidtalk.com. You also have an interview coming up later on in the show with Jennifer Spence. The wonderful Canadian who's starring in a fabulous Scottish series. <laughs> All right. Uh, thanks so much, Anne. We'll see you next week. We'll see you next week. Just as we're all starting to feel like we couldn't possibly take another thing on our already full plates, tax season has arrived. Thankfully, Susan Watkin, accountant and spokesperson for TurboTax, is here today. Susan has been an accounting professional for over 20 years and is passionate about keeping hardworking Canadians educated on all things to do with taxes. She joins me today to share what we should be looking out for as we file this year and how to get the most out of our returns. Welcome back to What She Said, Susan. Hi, thanks, Candice. So nice to see you again. You too. We were talking just before we started this interview. Say the last time we saw each other, you were my last interview before we went into lockdown. So don't blame me for that lockdown. <laughs> Well, it's a good way to end this. It was a good way to end the interview season then in 2020. So, but it's it's nice to definitely be back with you again this year. Yeah. So, you listen, I was reading this interesting little article and it said that, you know, when the income tax first came out, it was 4,000 words long uh, in 1917. Now it's over 1.1 million words. And to put that into perspective, it's the equivalent of seven Harry Potter novels. <laughs> that seems so complicated. It does. It's, it's, it's best to be taken in little bits and bites then and uh, don't try to read the whole uh, epic in one shot, I would say for sure. <laughs> so so for 2022, has it become even more complicated? You know, what should we be looking out for this year? Well, I, I'm going to say it's not become more complicated necessarily, be, but as usual, every year things change in our own lives, right? So it's it's really what's going on with us that we have to look at to see, well, what's changed in my life that could impact me on my taxes? So when the number one thing is marital status change, right? So did we get married, divorce, common law, have a child, things like that? Because all of these things could impact uh, a benefit that we were currently eligible for, one that we might not be eligible for anymore. Uh, we have um, 
lots of varying degrees. There's certain tax credits. Maybe I can now claim a, a spouse amount, you know, things like that. Did I turn 65? Did I go back to school or move? So I always like to tell people, I say, when the tax act changes, you know, it's, there'll be tweaks and things here and there, but it's really more look at what went on with you. And then now we have to figure out, okay, now what does that mean? And how is this going to impact my return? And can I get, you know, more back or different changes, different benefits, et cetera. Okay. Let's talk about the work from home situation though, because there's still a lot of that happening. Uh, And so are there credits that people should be looking for uh, in terms of work from home, even though they may not be self-employed? Yes, no, absolutely. So yeah, just like last year when we were doing our tax year for 2020, we had so many people working from home. We're all still working. Well, we're both here. We're both at home. And uh, so yeah, the the federal government back in the fall, they decided to take that temporary flat rate method for claiming those work from home expenses that we were given. And they've extended them into our tax year for 2021 and 2022, which is great. And they've actually increased it. So we went from a maximum of $400 to a maximum of $500. So this is for those that are working from home due to COVID. There is still some eligibility, but this means that by using that flat rate method for the deduction, you know, you don't have to track any expenses or get any forms filled out. So if you're eligible, making sure that you're claiming that deduction is essential. Okay. So the other thing I want to ask you is because I've read this, this survey and and you guys have cited it as well. Uh, that, you know, 60% of people started a side hustle. Mm-hmm. That is, well, first off, there that's a whole episode unto itself. Yeah. 60% of people starting a side hustle. <laughs> but I can only imagine that that may complicate things a little bit when you're filling out your taxes. If you're going from, say, somebody who had a typical nine to five to mm. still holding that nine to five, but now having some self-employment income. Is that true? Well, I... I want to tell people not to, don't get too concerned about it. It's not going to get too difficult, but yes, there are things you're going to have to do now. So you're still going to be using the same uh, tax return that you've done always, but now you've got an extra form. So we're talking specifically, Candice, about those unincorporated businesses. So a side gig, you're just a sole prop doing, maybe selling something on your own. So now you're going to be completing a new form on your tax return. It's called the T2125. And this is where you're going to report all that income and those expenses related specifically to that business. So it can be a little bit more complicated, but it's more so if you're prepared and you've got all that stuff together, it's really just going to be filling out another form to make sure you're, you're, you know, you're covering all that income and making sure you're getting those uh, expenses posted that uh, can help you lower that income. And does it change the deadline for filing at all? Uh, Because I know that for self-employed individuals, you have until June. Absolutely. Uh, But what if you're doing sort of both? You have still that nine to five, but the side hustle. Which deadline do you go with? Well, if you do have, if you have a, if you are a sole proprietor and you're filing a T2125 statement of business or professional activities form with your tax return, you have until June to file that return. And so what that means is that the normal April 30th deadline actually only applies to you now if you have any taxes owing. So you don't have to file the return until the June deadline, but if you owe taxes, you got to make sure that's paid before the end of April. Okay, good to know. That's actually, that, I felt like that was a question for me. <laughs> so well, thank you. <laughs> okay, so I do feel though that people are sort of wondering now, what's the best way to get through this year then to do it themselves? Mm-hmm. Uh, or, you know, 
uh, you know, with some help or maybe just have somebody else do it all together. So, so what are the options that TurboTax can help people with? Well, firstly, on I like to say personally that no matter your tax uh, situation, there is a tax solution for you at TurboTax, which is fantastic. And especially right now, they have uh, what's going on right now for those age 25 and under and before the end of 2021, it was TurboTax is actually offering the ability for those individuals to file their returns using any version of TurboTax online, assist and review or full service free of charge. So what this means is, especially for those that are just coming out of school, just getting into the workforce, maybe starting to have taxes owing and are a little bit nervous, they can consider using assistant review or full service free and to make sure that they get that best return possible. I just want to say that is a fabulous, fabulous offer. I mean, um, especially for young uh, adults who may have collected CERB and are unclear on where to put that and figure out their tax situation that way. That is such a great uh, service and free is also, you know, my favorite F word. Uh, (laughs) But you also are offering a full service uh, package this year. So can you explain a little bit about that? Well, the full the full service package is what this allows us to do. So as I was mentioning, so we've got assistant review, which is the one where if you want a little bit of support, but you can still do it yourself, you want to learn, you've got a tax expert that's going to be walking you through this, answering questions, helping you make sure you got those deductions and credits. But full service, full service is the tax expert is going to take it on for you. So you're just providing your documents and you're walking away and you're saying they are going to make sure that that you get that tax return done. They're going to make sure all of those deductions and tax credits are searched for to get you that best return possible. And as as we just said, yeah, under 25 at the end of last year, that's going to be free for you this year. Yeah. And, you know, I think, too, uh, you know, for those of us not under 25 uh, and maybe feeling a little overwhelmed with everything yeah. that's going on, that service is um, is great. I mean, personally, I'm going to be running with that full service this year. I just I don't even want to think about taxes. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm happy to have somebody else. But I will say that last year I did it with the uh, assist, you know, uh, live and assist. Mm-hmm. And that was also really easy and, and intuitive. So no matter what route you go, I think there's a, like you said, there's a solution for everybody yeah. uh, with TurboTax this year. So Susan, thank you so much for joining me. It's always a delight having you. Uh, where can people connect with you and where can they find out more about the uh, TurboTax services this year for 2022? Well, thanks, Candice. It was lovely to see you again. It's been too long. And yeah, everybody, if you're looking for information on the TurboTax products, go to TurboTax.ca. That's your best first place to stop. But you can also find them on social media, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, everything. It's under TurboTax Canada usually. And all the details on the products are there as, as well as information on the special offer right now for those 25 and under. Okay. And did you share where people can connect with you? You're on Twitter, are you not? I'm on tw- I'm on Twitter not so much anymore but t- you could possibly find me but I'm there I'm I'm in the back helping out the TurboTax Canada people this year so connect with me there. All right, amazing. Thank you Susan. Always a pleasure to talk to you. Same here Candice. Take care. You have yourself a great day. More with Candace Sampson and what she said coming up on 105.9 The Region. Welcome back to What She Said with Candace Sampson on 105.9 The Region. Cause I'm just 
Jennifer, your role in season two of Traces is so huge. There's so much going on with you. There's this dean who's problematic. There is a terrorist bomber out in Dundee. There's your love life is at a standstill. All kinds of stuff happening. Were you thrilled to see how big it was? Totally. Just reading it because thankfully Amelia uh sent me the arc of my character before we got started. So I wasn't like completely shocked when I, you know, read the scripts. But yeah, I was so thrilled to see where he was going and just so (laughs) it's like an actor's dream to build a sink into that, you know? You deal with a lot of heavy duty things and it's it's appropriate. But it's also appropriate in life. And you kind of give us a a little bit of a life lesson to be more uh, um, assertive and and to be certain of ourselves. I think that's really great for women to see this. So congratulations. Oh, thank you. No, I agree. Because I noticed that myself too, is, is when I talk to people. And if a woman is being more assertive, then there is even that sort of implicit bias in myself. Is that the right term for it? Of just like, of just like, oh, is she being bitchy? It's like, no, she's just being assertive. Now, regarding the dean, I'm ultra furious with her because she has various beefs, but it seems personal. She seems somehow threatened by Kathy and it's not right to have a woman in her, you know, undercut another woman who's doing a great job. Um, That must have been fun to do. And what's your relationship like with the actor? Oh, yeah. Badria was (laughs) was lovely. She was really sweet and fun. And and uh, yeah, we had some good talks together. Uh, which is, yeah, which is great. Cause then we can just sort of turn it on in the scene. But, um, I love those kinds of scenes because as much as, you know, one might want to say it's a stereotype women undercutting women or women being horrible to each other. I've certainly experienced it in my life. I'm sure you probably have to as well. Um, you know, it's, it's a shame, uh, but it's, you know, it is certainly something that a lot of people grapple with. Um, I remember someone saying to me, that the difference between men and women, or at least in, in uh, like junior high, yeah. is that if men have a beef, they'll just fight it out physically and it'll be done. And if women have a beef with each other, then they'll give each other eating disorders. You know? So it's just like, it, it's dark, but kind of true. Kind of true. true. Kind of true. Yeah. So anyway, it was, it was uh, yeah, it was fun to get to explore that darkness um and i think you know for the dean if we're going to come from a place of compassion which which we should always try to do is that you know she's new she's trying to prove herself and feeling a bit threatened because she doesn't really know everything yet and knows but has heard about the different you know professors and and people there who've been there for quite some time and have some influence so you can see why she'd be a bit threatened but it's probably not the best approach one she did. And you know, it just shows sometimes people are hired and as you say, they know nothing about the area, but they know about fundraising. So exactly. They come from a different sort of avenue. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. hopefully it works out. Um also I just want to address something else that you never see on TV. <clears throat> and that and I, I'm glad you uh the the screenwriters raised it. And that is the the whole idea of experiments on animals. 
obviously it's not nice and we don't like it, but it's our safety, you know, and she has no doubts that it's, that it's, that it has to be, but it's interesting that it is even just there. So would you please talk about that a bit? Yeah, I think it's there, you know, for that reason, basically what you said is, is to explore the necessity, quote unquote, of it. And also, you know, the, the very scientific fact-based reasons for why we do it. Um, for me personally, Jen, like I did kind of struggle with it because I was just like, ah, you know, I, yeah. I have an issue with that personally. So it, it was hard to, to compartmentalize that way. But, you know, Kathy very much views that, views life in facts and views life in, in results and cause and effect. And uh, it, it makes sense to her, you know, and it doesn't mean she doesn't love animals. She does. She has dogs and, yeah. you know, but it's just that thing of everything being in their rightful place and rightful use and uh, just separating emotion from it. Now tell me what you know about another season coming, because I would love that and the fans would love it. Oh man, I hope so. Cause yeah, we just, we love it too. We just, we absolutely love filming it and, and, uh, you know, sinking into these characters. So I hope so. It'll just depend on, you know, viewership and, yeah. and members and all that good stuff. So. Yeah. Well, here's hoping because it's terrific. And I love that they're giving Dundee a little shout out. My family yeah. is originally from Dundee. So yay, Dundee. And, and you haven't been, is that right? Or have I you haven't been? been. I've been almost everywhere else in Scotland up to Brody, but not to Dundee. And I was told to go there. So nice to speak to you, Jennifer. Yeah, you I love the series. I think it's so female forward and strong. So that's thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Okay, bye bye. There are a lot of holes in the divorce system in this country, ranging from financial accessibility to a failure to recognize financial abuse and domestic violence. Literally, it can be a life or death situation, and with roughly 70,000 divorces filed annually, it's high time we take a closer look at a system that is leaving a trail of broken lives in its wake. Sarah Larniuk is the senior producer of Canada Land, a national news podcast, and is joining me today to share details on a recent episode in which she explored four divorce cases in Canada and how the system failed. Full disclosure, yours truly is featured in this interview. Welcome to What She Said, Sarah. Hi, thanks for having me. So what prompted you to want to do uh, a podcast on the divorce system in Canada? Well, um, I guess I guess the episode's informed by yet another divorce because um, I'd also gone through a divorce. Um, in fact, like I got my divorce certificate the Friday before it aired. So three days before it aired while I was still working on the episode. Um, and in going through my own divorce, it it wasn't that my circumstance was so awful, but it was that it really did highlight, um, you know, I, I come from a reasonable place of privilege and I recognize that. And I struggled and 
I couldn't believe the enormous costs and I couldn't believe the adversarial nature of the entire process. Like my former partner and I came with, uh, with a separation agreement in hand to our lawyers and we were like, can you just make this legal? And it was in excess of $10,000 for me personally. And I don't actually even know what his costs were. Like that just seemed unreasonable. It was an unreasonable place to start when like we've divided our stuff. We know what this is going to look like and how does this possibly bottom out our bank accounts just to move forward with our lives. Right. And you don't have children involved in this this scenario, correct? Yeah. So it was it was just like as simple as it can be. We had limited dispute over assets. We have no children. We just we just want to be done with this, right? Like I, I can't I literally can't even get into the circumstances that my divorce or my marriage dissolved under because I in the divorce settlement had to sign an NDA, which was pretty crazy. Um but like it just seemed so ripe for problems. And that's what made me want to look for the more extreme cases, like like yours, <laughs> like <laughs> like mine. Enter Candace's story, uh, and so and I do feature in this podcast. I encourage everybody to go over and listen to it. But as you were doing this, then in producing and interviewing people, what what was coming up for you? Uh, you know, what alarm bells were sort of sounding as you were listening to these stories? Uh, well, there's a lot of common themes like the adversarial nature of the system uh, off the bat, the cost. And people don't have $20,000 to sink into a divorce, like on both sides. So like 20000 each kind of thing. And this is in more simple cases. Like I said, I, I don't know what your bill is at, but like it, it, it kept being a reoccurring theme where I just, and we didn't have space on the show and I don't have the voices for obvious reasons, of the people who didn't leave because they recognized the barriers, you know, and it, it's present in every circumstance. Um, so, so as you were going through in the podcast, you did have some some experts contributing throughout, and so did you, uh, you know, div- come up with some ideas of ways that the system can be improved. It, it depends on whether you're talking about the Canadian system, like as it is, there's improvements to be made even just there in terms of more funding and dedicated family courts. Those exist in some parts of the country, but not everywhere, not in BC, Alberta, Quebec, or in large parts of Ontario. For example, um, it doesn't exist in Toronto and it's a rather large, <laughs> significant portion of Ontario where Instead of seeing a judge that understands family case law, understands the signs of domestic abuse, financial abuse, you're just seeing a judge, uh, a higher superior court judge in most cases. It could be a labor court judge. It could be any number of other things. Uh, And it's not someone who specializes in this. And that's a problem. It also. The professor I spoke with, uh, Professor Rolly Thompson, uh, he talked about how even in in cases of abuse, having the ancillary services, so like the people who do the scheduling in the courts, identifying cases that need to be seen immediately because of abuse, that all is, that's all included if you have a court system that is devoted to family law only, as opposed to like just the civil court system as a whole. 
Yeah. And you know, that like my, I myself, you know, can tell you that I've had an urgent matter in front of a judge now, uh, going on one month. Uh, so who defines urgent, um, in these cases? Uh, because it seems to me that a month to get to something that has been designated as important and urgent needs action is way too long. So is it that there's just not enough people to handle the cases coming through? Or, you know, or is it just complacency? Like, I'm not sure. I can't quite figure this out. Well, and I think a part of a part of the problem with addressing, quote unquote, the divorce system as one monolith is that it's not the same uh, because in each province you have a different circumstance. But by and large, yeah, funding for civil courts, if you had more judges, if you had dedicated family courts, like these things would move more quickly. And in cases where things are truly urgent, it would be identified as such, uh, as opposed to trying to balance, you know, urgent family matters, urgent civil matters, all of all of the things that the court is currently handling in places where there isn't a dedicated family court system. Your circumstance was horrifying in that you faced such trauma going through loss of a house, loss of your wealth, like all of that. And then in in the more urgent cases still, it it's a matter of life and death for people, not just for children, as one of the cases in my episode demonstrated, like kids' lives are on the line, but also spouses and predominantly female uh, partners. Uh, like they're at risk of bodily harm, of of death and what do you mean we can't get them a court time? Like it, it, it's, it's truly horrifying and maddening. And the lawyer I spoke with uh, in the episode talks about how that's weaponized. Like the delays are used as a tool to further abuse or just, or just for their own betterment, right? Like if someone has a financial advantage against their partner, they can just keep delaying the process until the other person is bled dry. Like it, the spectrum is enormous. Right. It's like a game. I, I'm going to drive you to the, I'm going to drive you to financial ruin so that you can no longer come after me. That is, that's a play that a lot of people are, are putting in motion here. I'm curious, did you have a hard time collecting hard data on divorce in this country? Yeah, uh, that's an interesting aspect of all of this, too, because, you know, like anecdotally, I think we've all heard about the divorce boom from COVID. And we actually have no idea because in the mid 2000s, we stopped collecting statistics. Canada stopped collecting data on divorces. And so we actually don't have any data that tells us what's been going on or how urgent these issues are or what the different circumstances are that lead to divorce. We have no information. Uh, outside of what's been done in by like private researchers who have done studies and stuff like that. But like as far as, you know, our government collecting data about what the problem is, it's not happening. However, one thing that didn't make it into the episode is that um, I talked to Justice Canada uh, and one of the lead lead researchers there talked about how later this month uh, or later this spring, sorry, I should say, uh, they will be releasing statistics again, which is an exciting event. Like that did. The episode was so dense, I didn't even get to it. But it was it, it is a step forward. If we understand the problems, then maybe someone can fix them. 
Absolutely. I agree. I mean, I've, I already saw it myself, you know, looking at the Justice of Canada website, they list out, a, you know, some statistics of what happens to women in divorce, you know, the loss of income, how, how it takes six years to recover, um, you know, on average. And yet the courts are not supporting the data that's being shared on their own website. So it's, a, it's frustrating to see this. So hopefully uh, the data they're collecting now will help um, support decisions they make down the road that affect a lot of families. Um, Sarah, I want people to be able to listen to the episode at Connect With You, follow along with Canada Land. So where can they do all of that? So they can visit the Canada Land website, which is canadaland.com, or you can search Canada Land um, wherever you get your podcasts, uh, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, we're there. Uh, and it's called Will You Be My Ex? Canada's Broken Divorce System. And uh, I'm on Twitter at Sarah Larnuk. Uh, good luck spelling my last name, but <laughs> that's where I am. <laughs> good luck saying it. I still killed it at the at the beginning. I tried. <laughs> it's great. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right, Sarah. Thank you so much for joining me today. All right. Thank you. More with Candace Sampson and what she said coming up on 105.9 The Region. Welcome back to What She Said with Candace Sampson on 105.9 The Region. I can understand how you'd be so confused. I don't envy you. I'm a little bit of everything. Written and illustrated by first-time author Rayanne Brown, Bedtime in Nonaziavit is a beautiful and joyful tribute to an Inuit childhood. Rayanne lives with her family in Wabush, Newfoundland, and Labrador, and joins me now to discuss this beautiful book for children depicting the transformative dreams envisioned by a young Inuk girl with the help of her loving mother. Welcome to the show, Rayanne. Thank you so much for having me. So tell me, this is your first book correct? Yes, it's my first uh, published children's book. And was there a moment where you thought, you know, was this, you know, we always see it in the movies, so there's a moment where it's inspiration, you must do it, or was it something that unfolded over time? Um, it was something that, it was really spontaneous. Um, it, it only took me three days to write the story from start to finish. The illustrations took a bit longer, but once I got started once the first page was done, I knew I had to finish it. And I I kept at it for like three days straight. And by the time I was done, I had an actual story that I think um, my children really loved. And I knew right then and there I had something special. Now, I mean, I think this, I know the answer to this, but I mean, for my listeners, why is Indigenous literature, particularly for children, so important? Um, so my youngest daughter now, she's seven. She was five when I when I wrote this story. Um, and being at the time, her age, when I was her age, I cannot remember ever opening a book and um, seeing a little girl on the pages that reminded, reminded me of myself. And if I couldn't remember that then and still, there are very many books right now that... Um, any Indigenous child could really open up and see their, themselves in those pages. So I, I think it's really important, especially in 2022, to have um, inclusive books and books that are made and written and inspired for 
Indigenous children, from my memories, my own self, when I was a little girl, not having something like that, um, it's really important, I think, for not just Indigenous children, but non-Indigenous alike to open books and see other cultures and and especially for special for Indigenous children to be able to see themselves in those pages. Can you share what the storyline is then for this book? Um, so it's about a little girl who, um, with the help of her Anilux clinic, which is an Inuit kiss, um, dreams every night that she transforms into a different animal and travels all over Nunatsia, but um, to each community and for me, the story came because when I was little, the town I'm from, Postville, which is also in the book, is um, a really small place. There's 250 people there and they're, it's isolated. There's no roads in or out um, just by bolt by summer and then skidoo winter time and a little twin outer plane. And it's still like that. So when I was little, I really wanted to travel. I used to imagine what it would be like just to turn into a bird so I could fly somewhere turn into a fish so I could swim wherever I wanted. So I think that's where it came from. But now that I'm older, the place that I would like to be the most is home. So it's, I guess when you're a child, you want, you want to get away. But then when you're growing up, that it's the place that you want to be most. And just for a second, you still are in that small community, as you mentioned. And so, you know, did you have any hurdles to getting this book out? Or is it because we're so connected now that you were able to achieve this? Uh, so I don't live in Postville anymore. I'm still in Labrador. Postville is in Nunatia, which is on the north coast of Labrador. Now I'm, on, I'm in Labrador City, Wabush now. So still Labrador, still isolated. Um, but I definitely think that... Um, where we are also connected now through social media, it, that did really help me. And in the time that I first became a little bit known for this story, we were all kind of locked down. And the only connection that any of us really had was through social media. So I, I think that that really helped me in a way that we still had those connections, even though we were all isolating and staying apart. So. I'm grateful for that. And now, you know, I speak to a lot of authors on this show. So now that you have your first book out, are you already thinking about the next one? I am. So I did a bunch of readings for um, schools all over New Zealand and Labrador recently. And one of the first questions that a lot of the kids had for me after the book was over was, when is the next one coming out? So that is something that I'm thinking about, but I'm still right now um and uh, that this is this book is coming out. So this one will be out soon. And then I guess I'll start working on the second one. All right. Well, I want uh, people across Canada to be able to find your book. So uh, if you could please share the title of the book, where they can find it and where they can keep track of you and what you're up to. So um, the book is called Bedtime in New Nazi Avalid, and that can be found um, on Amazon Books uh, through my publishing house, Arsenal Pulp Press chapters. There's quite a few places that are carrying this book right now. It's for pre-sale and it's releasing on April 26th. Um, I also own a business in Labrador City called Inuki Glass Art and Engraving where I share a lot of my indigenous art and culture and um, my page is Inuki Glass Art and Engraving and I can, you can find me there and on, on all other social media platforms. All right. Wonderful. Rayanne, thank you so much for joining me today.
Thank you so much. That's it for What She Said for this week. Stay up to date with our newsletter by signing up at whatshesaidtalk.com. And be sure to follow on social at What She Said Talk on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for videos of these interviews and more. Finally, be sure to subscribe to What She Said with Candace Sampson on Apple and Spotify to re-listen to this episode and find full details for all of today's guests. I'll be back next week with more What She Said on 105.9 The Region. Previous episodes of What She Said on 1059theregion.com. It is your favorite girl. That's right. It's the Ali Mars, the one and the only. Everyone else just ain't me. I am the host of Welcome to Mars, a lifestyle podcast where nothing is off the table. I have come a long way from sex and dating and have transformed the new vibe to all things lifestyle. We still talk sex, but I'm more interested in the journey, where people have come from, how they made it, and where they're going. Subscribe or follow to a brand new look and a brand new era. Welcome to Mars. Subscribe or follow on Apple, Spotify, Google, or at theallymars.com. Because even with the new look, I'm still that same bitch you love to hate. I'm Jeff Woods, and I'm shining a light on music and the rock stars who make it. He just was one of those people, he, he stood out. He was a magic guy. He really was a magic guy. All, we all have force. He had the same amount of force as we all have. This was before Led Zeppelin. Robert was full on. I mean, he was Led Zeppelin without the band behind him. He had the hair, the jeans, the whole thing, you know. And he was amazing. The Records and Rockstars podcast, heard around the world and yours to hear wherever you get podcasts. All the episodes from jeffwoodsradio.com. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.